and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, I am not as clever as I thought I was. You see, boys and girls, I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit and tell you a little bit about what it is to be a podcaster. I don't know how things work for other podcasters. I mean, it's not like we get together every year at conventions and we... We trade our ideas and our thoughts and our experiences with one another. We take notes and and all that. It's not like that ever happens. Never happens. But I'll go out on a limb and suggest that my experience is probably generally comparable to a lot of podcasters out there, at least from the standpoint that I'm always on uh, on, on the hunt for... An original idea. Not necessarily every single original idea that I have is going to get used on this show. And not necessarily every idea that that gets used on this show is an original idea. But every once in a while, call it luck, call it fate, call it karma, you come across an idea that is both original and compatible with your show. It's rare, but it happens. A good example is that series that I used to do with Chris Honeywell called The Big Book Report, where Honeywell and I would talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books, you know, the big book of urban legends, the big book of the 70s, the big book of conspiracy theories, so on and so forth, right? To the best of my knowledge, which isn't saying a whole lot, but to the best of my knowledge, nobody else in podcasting had ever recorded episodes about the big books before. So I had an idea. As far as I can tell, it was original. And it was compatible with my show, with my podcast, right? I got lucky is what I'm trying to say. I got lucky with the DC Paradox Press big books, all right? I got very lucky. I'll be the first to admit that. And I thought I was Mr. Galaxy-brained smart guy when ages... It feels like ages ago at this point. Jeez, 2020, I tell you. But it, it, it seems like it was ages ago, but it probably wasn't. I recorded those episodes about... Wizard Magazine, going by memory, because I, I could be wrong, it's not like I know everything, but going by memory, I recorded episodes about Wizard Magazine number 40 and number 44, and so thick, so heavy, so dense was my smugness about it. I was convinced I was the smartest guy in the world. I was convinced that I had cracked the code. I was convinced that I'd had an idea that was compatible with my show and was original. Now, I'm aware of the fact that there have been other podcasts out there that have talked about uh, Wizard Magazine. I'm aware of this, but I thought what would set me apart is that I was not talking about Wizard Magazine in general. I was talking about specific issues of Wizard Magazine, and there 
boys and girls, I thought I'd hit upon this amazingly glorious, stupendous, original, creative idea that you're only going to hear on Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. And then I checked after recording, shortly after recording, uh, that second of the two previous episodes that I've done about Wizard Magazine. After recording the second of those two, I refilled my memory of it as I refilled my, my vape juice, opened up YouTube, and there was a recommendation from the YouTube channel Cartoonist Kayfabe where they talked about, I don't even remember, some issue or another of Wizard Magazine. And this is something that Cartoonist Kayfabe does quite a lot. They talk, I mean, they talk about a lot of things, but they've talked at great length about specific issues of Wizard. And guys, these, the you know, various of these uh, episodes that they've done about uh, issues of Wizard, they were done in some cases like a year ago or two years ago or something like that. So there's no possible fucking way they got their idea from me. So let this be a lesson to you. You know, I encourage everybody to start a podcast. Well, let this be a lesson to you. Sometimes you think that you've come across this genius original idea and aren't you just Mr. Smart Guy? And then you get humbled a little bit. You find out that, I mean, let's face it, your betters have... They had, number one, the same basic idea that you had. And then number two, they fucking did it better than you did. You know, so, I mean, God, didn't I feel like an asshole? So, but that's not enough to put me off of today's subject, because in case it wasn't obvious, I'm going to be talking about another issue of Wizard, but not just any issue of Wizard. No, my good friends, this is Wizard number 41. Now, if you don't have this issue up in front of you right now, and I would understand if you don't, but if you don't, you need to know that, guys, this is, like, you could, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but, I mean, like, you could kill somebody with this issue of Wizard. I mean, this is just a thick fucking issue of, uh, in fact, here, I'll, this, I just flipped it open to the last page. This son of a bitch has exactly 300 pages in it. Now, I don't know if that... Yeah, in fact, actually, I, I do know now. I just checked. this. That does include ads. So this thing, it's not 300 pages of content. That's 300 pages counting however many ads and contests and stuff like that. But still, guys, I mean, 300 fucking pages. I mean, I think the average issue of Wizard, ordinarily during this time, it was... Actually, you know what? I didn't even think to check, but I guess I could. I think I've got another... I think I've got another issue of it. Yes! Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes you have to look underneath some some stuff. But yeah, you can, you can find what you're looking for. All right, so ordinarily, uh, this issue that I just picked up at random, this is uh, Wizard number 52 from December of 1995. How perfect is that? Uh, this is Wizard number uh, 52. This has... It goes up to page 208. So this issue that we're talking about today, number 41, that goes up to 300. So it's that much thicker than the normal. So this is, well, like I say, it's just thicker. And 
Now, the reason for that, this is cover date, January uh, 1995. It is basically a look back at 1994. And by most standards, I think it would be fair to say 1994 was a little bit of a weird year for comics in as much as the crash of 1993 had happened. And the thing is, I don't think the crash was a singular event. My memory of it and my general understanding of it is that this was an ongoing process. You know, there was a, and I swear to think it was like June or July or something like that, 1993. Basically, orders of comics, like the amount of of, of comics that came out that month was the highest ever, I think, of all time. And the orders that you would ex- that you would have expected would it would have been kind of similar to the orders placed to the month before in fact no it was like half or something like that that's my understanding of it and that's my kind of fuzzy ma- i mean i was a little kid when this happened so who even knows but nevertheless that's my understanding and that does seem to be the story that a lot of that a lot of people who were there and were older and in theory they've got a clearer recognition or uh, recollection of uh, of what happened. That's generally the story that they tell. And so all of this is kind of a long, maybe an unnecessarily long way of saying that 1994, it really was a fucking weird year in comics. By any sane standard, this was just a bizarre year. And so as a result, you this, this issue, in some ways it is just another issue of Wizard Magazine, but it's also a little bit of an acknowledgement that Things have changed, and the industry as a whole hasn't completely adjusted to that just yet. Some of them are very well aware of the fact that 1992 is over. Others of them, it's it's less it's less clear that that they understand that the game has changed forever. But we'll get back to that when we get back to that. Uh, as it is for right now, what I want to do is actually just take it from the top with the cover. This cover, you know, I probably should have checked on this before I started uh, before I started a, a recording. This is it, it. Basically, it features Cyclops, and he's uh, making his metal face. He's uh, gritting his teeth, blasting uh, his eyes toward the sky. And he's basically, it basically looks like he's having a pretty bad day. And I wish I could tell you who drew it, but I'm not finding any fucking credits for this. And it's actually starting to get a little annoying here. I mean, how obvious is this? You know, you, you wouldn't, you want to put something like that in sort of an, sort of an obvious place, but... Apparently, it hasn't occurred to anyone to do that, so I I don't know. But anyway, this is basically if I, if I've got this right, this cover it's basically recycled from a set of Marvel trading cards. And every time I look at this, it's like I can't really figure out. Do I think that this cover is drawn? Oh wait, here it is. There is a signature here, Mark Sasso. It's faint, but it's there. If you look close at the cover, for those of you reading along. Wizard Magazine, especially back back in in those days, it would say the guide to comics. And so it says the guide to comics at the bottom of the cover and right above guide, 
or the G in guide, it says, it looks like it says Mark Sasso or Mark Sorrow or something like that. So I have no idea who that is, but this is a really badass cover. I like it. Now, I'm, I've always been kind of inclined to the belief that Slim Summers, he needs to be kind of thin. You know, he needs to be sort of lean and lanky. And what we see here, this is Cyclops. He's powerful, large, and in charge on the cover. And this is not a guy you want to fuck around with too much. And so, I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, I'm, I'm of two minds about it because the character really was intended to be, like I say, skinny. But it's, at the same time, comics are supposed to be about, or, the, or rather, they're supposed to feature the idealized human form. And the idealized human form is not lean and lanky like Slim Summers. He really should, at least in theory, uh, be kind of chiseled a little bit, you know, just to be in keeping with the comic book tradition. And so, I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. I mean, I tend to err on, on the side of saying, yeah, I know that we're supposed to have idealized uh, forms here and everything, but you can still have sort of like a Bruce Lee type of cut sort of Cyclops. He doesn't necessarily need to be massive, but I suppose it's all in how you look at it. Now, the reason I'm being a little bit of a pain in the ass about this is because that actually does kind of feed into one of the first things from this issue that I want to talk about. Specifically, this is page eight, Magic Words, a letter written by Suzanne S. Clark. And she writes to, uh, to Wizard, she says, Dear Mr. McLaughlin, Thank you for responding to my letter and for taking an interest in this subject. Actually, you know what? I need to roll back here. There's actually a little bit of an intro here that we need to go through. The, the uh, editor or assistant editor or fucking whoever handled the, the, uh, letters, the letters column for Wizard, Jim McLaughlin, or if it's somebody else, I mean, who knows? But anyway, basically the intro goes as follows. It says, two issues ago, we got a letter from our new pal, Suzanne S. Clark detailing what she thought were female-slash-male inequities in the way comic characters were physically portrayed. We asked her to follow up and tell us what she wanted to see. This is what we got. And so Suzanne S. Clark writes, Dear Mr. McLaughlin, Thank you for responding to my letter and for taking an interest in this subject. Anyway, here's what I came up with. Women want better, not bigger, well, some things could be accentuated a little more. We want better-looking guys. John Prophet, Rogue Prime, the, uh, the, the Punisher, and Daniel from Hellshock are what we want more of regarding ideal physiques. Guys who are tough, but not ugly. But we definitely need smaller outfits. Tighter and thinner would be nice, too. As far in this, and honestly, guys, up to this point, I really don't have much of a beef with what she says or what she's asking for here. But from this point forward in her letter, it's like she wrote this fucking bullshit with a straight face. All right. She says, again, this is Suzanne S. Clark. This is her letter. She says, as far as women's roles go, she is an example to follow because she's intelligent and kicks ass, but 
uh, or rather, she's because she's intelligent and kicks ass, and because when she's nude, it makes sense. She's meditating. Cool. That's very creative on the author's part, and quote-unquote literally responsible, too. But I really can't figure out why all the other comic book women are only wearing thong bathing suit slash leotard deals at most and look like they're cruising for dates while they are, in fact, trying to fight the forces of evil. I can't figure that. I'd like to see a wider range of roles for females, maybe some tough characters, such as pilots, soldiers, hired assassins, whatever, just not the same Barbie bimbos I see so much of now. Guys, let that sink in for a minute. She doesn't come right out and say it because I think she's got some modicum of self-awareness going on here. But basically, this fucking tart, what she wants is for the men to be dressed all all uh, skimpy and everything. She wants them to wear revealing clothes and, and, and all that. Uh, tighter outfits. She even says, but we definitely need smaller outfits. I mean, bitch actually comes right out and says that. She even says tighter and thinner would be nice too. All right. So clearly she doesn't have a problem. Golly, I think I'm getting a, a, a package delivered right now. So clearly she doesn't have a problem with the idea of male comic book characters dressed in tight uh, costumes, revealing costumes, and all that fun stuff. She doesn't have a problem with that. She does have a problem with it, though, when it's women. Then we start having a problem. And basically what this really comes down to is this fucking tart. She basically wants comics to reflect her, her heterosexuality. I can understand that a heterosexual woman finds... Uh, good-looking, muscular men in uh, tight, what did she say? Tighter and thinner outfits, she would find that visually appealing. It also makes sense that a heterosexual woman probably isn't as interested in seeing women in skimpy comic book, like 90s comic book outfits. Those two things make sense to me, but what she's basically calling for is for the entire goddamn industry to be transformed to suit her tastes. Now, notwithstanding the fact that the crash had just happened, the comic book industry, even in 1994, it was smaller than it had been in 1993, no doubts there, but it was still a thriving industry, that as compared to 2020 when the comic book industry... Hey, can you even call it a fucking industry anymore? I mean, the thing's a train wreck. My God. <clears throat> but my point is, at least in 1994, it was still thriving. It was still successful. People were, sti people were still getting rich, making comics. People were still voraciously buying comics. And she thinks the entire fucking industry needs to change just to suit her. How fucking entitled. So anyway, then she goes on to say, oh, and one last uh, comment. Hooray for Rob Liefeld for ripping drawn... <clears throat> Boy, did I screw that up. Let's try again. Oh, and one last comment. Hooray for Rob Liefeld for ripping John Prophet's outfit after he battled the Bloodstrike team in Prophet number two. If the hero's costumes can't be made smaller for some reason, then maybe they could just get ripped to shreds occasionally. That'd be great. Signed, Suzanne S. Clark. 
an entitled, self-important tart. And guys, I mean, holy fucking shit. Somebody wrote this letter completely unironically with a straight face. They were completely serious. This was written in good fucking faith. And... I just, I, 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 look, there's an entire, in fact, you might say that half of the world's population, or at least half of America's population, lacks anything similar to self-reflection, you know? This ability to consider oneself, one's opinions, one's presuppositions and ideals, and think, what if I'm wrong, you know? What if these things that define my worldview, what if it's all bullshit? What if these opinions that I espouse so loudly are flawed, flat-out fucking wrong? I will go out on a limb and say, like, 51% of America's population completely fucking lacks that ability. They just don't have any... Eh, capacity for self-reflection. And Suzanne S. Clark, the entitled, smug, self-important tart who wrote this letter, definitely fits that description. I mean, it's like within the same fucking paragraph. You know, it. it's... And she just doesn't see it. it she wants semi-naked men she could do without the semi-naked women. She doesn't see a contradiction between these two things. And, I don't know, it's... It's unbelievable! So, anyway. I just wanted to throw all of that out there and... see what comes back to me. So, anyway, moving right along here. I don't want to get super in-depth to this article on page 24. It's called After Xavier. And it's basically sort of a, a preview of coming attractions regarding uh, the storyline Age of Apocalypse. Now, for those of you who don't know, Age of Apocalypse, it's basically this kind of high-concept alternate timeline where Magneto becomes the founder and leader of the X-Men. It's this very dystopic, post-apocalyptic uh, type of uh, storyline and the shtick of it is that in this alternate timeline Charles Xavier died at a pretty young age you know he and Eric Lyncher they knew each other they were friends and, and and all that but before they had their big falling out before the founding of the Brotherhood before the founding of the X-Men before all that bullshit Charles Xavier died and there's some story shit that goes into that, like how did he die and, all, and who killed him and all that. And I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I will say that I read, I finally got a chance to, uh, this was in the summer of 2015, I finally had a chance to read, I don't know if I want to say all of Age of Apocalypse, but I read like a bigly chunk of it, like 90, 95%. You know, there may have been, like, a stray one-shot here or there that I missed or something like that. But in the main, I, I want to say that I that I read most of it. And I really enjoyed it. It was a fun story. 
and I was even supposed to do an episode about it a couple of years ago, and number one, my plan for that episode ended up kind of crashing down around my ears, and number two, what I realized was, you know what, Age of Apocalypse as an event is one of those things that I want to spend more than one episode dissecting and working my way through and all of that. And so I decided for the time being to shelve that episode, and so I forget what it was now, but I replaced that episode with <clears throat> with uh, something else, and the in the end, the Age of Apocalypse episode, it just, it, it, it ended up just never, never happening, right? So, that's fine. The... Oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at the Ring app right now. Something was definitely delivered, and it's not the thing that I was waiting on, because fuck my life. But anyway, so, I, basically, I wanted to make sure that I did a thorough job of Age of Apocalypse, and I, and I was, I became virtually convinced that I would need a lot more than one episode in order to do the thing justice. So, so there you go. Now, before all of that, though, back when this, let's see... January of 1995, that was still in the future, you know, and so basically it was right, it was, I, I believe it was starting in this issue of Wizard that Marvel really began hyping up Age of Apocalypse and how big everything was going to be and how just fucking awesome it, 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 it all was and, and all of that. And I, like I say, I do intend to do some episodes about about Age of... In fact, probably, if anything, several episodes about Age of Apocalypse. But the... So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to dwell too much on it here, except to say this is like a five or six page article. I mean, you know, Wizard, they're definitely giving Marvel their due here when it comes to uh, the importance of this storyline and everything. And uh, But one thing I do actually kind of want to run through here real quick. The minute I heard this, first off, it never crossed my mind. Like, even when I was a kid, you know, when this storyline was first announced, it never crossed my mind that this was going to be a permanent thing. This is a story that Marvel is telling, and this story is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and once it's over, in a general sense, things are going to go back to normal, right? I just kind of walked in making that assumption. But other people were making other assumptions, and I thought, even as a kid, that they were being stupid, and that actually does time, kind of get a little... That tends to get reinforced here a little bit. Um, this article itself begins on page 24. The section I want to read from, this is on page 26. The little subheading says, Cause for Change. Article says... Want to make a writer defensive? Praise DC Comics out loud. Quote, I'd rather not compare what we're doing to DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths or Zero Hour, quite honestly, says uh, Nicieza, meaning the writer, Fabian Nicieza. Not to sound facetious in any way, but what they are doing is a radical reorganization of their continuity. We are not doing that. We are doing a story. Theirs is a revisionist version of their previous history in order to hopefully make their future more streamlined. Ours has nothing to do with that whatsoever. 
our story affects all of the X-Men titles. That's all it is. And, I, and the reason I kind of want to emphasize that is I remember people suggesting that following Crisis on Infinite Earths, following Zero Hour, and perhaps other things as well, what Marvel was looking for was their own Crisis, or their own Zero Hour, or whatever. And I thought that was stupid even at the time, because the way that things worked, especially back in the 90s, but the way that things worked back then was that DC fans and Marvel fans had a broadly good-natured rivalry with one each other, with with one another, you know, where they they enjoyed kind of teasing each other and they would, you know, laugh and poke fun and in the great majority of cases this was all in good fun, you know. And so DC fans would throw down the gauntlet saying stuff like Hey, Marvel fans, where's your crisis on Infinite Earths? And Marvel fans would kind of talk a salty line of trash in return saying, Marvel doesn't need crisis on Infinite Earths. Our continuity works just fine, guys. And it, it, it was basically good nature. You know, now I'm, I'm aware of stories that people tell where Marvel fans and DC fans would come to blows. I've never witnessed such things. I'm just saying I've heard it, and the sources that I have, I, 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 I do trust, but I'm just saying I personally have never seen it. I just, I've heard the same stories as anybody else. And nevertheless, the assumption that a lot of people were making is that you had the old Marvel timeline that basically gets concluded with Legion Quest, which is to say the kind of lead-in to Age of Apocalypse. And then once Age of Apocalypse runs its course, that the original timeline gets restored, but in a way that fix all, fixes all of the continuity problems. Because contrary to what Marvel fans may think, yes, Marvel still had continuity problems. They just didn't talk about them a whole lot, but they, they did exist. I'm going to tell you that they existed. And so the, the big galaxy brain genius conspiracy theory idea that I remember hearing in my LCS, and I mean a lot, there were a lot of people who were convinced about this, is that Age of Ultron was basically going to be kind of like a soft revisioning of certain troublesome elements of Marvel's history, like what war exactly was the Punisher a veteran of? Because maybe back in like the late 70s or something like that, the timeline kind of adds up for Frank Castle to be a veteran of the Vietnam War. But when you start getting into 1993, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore for Frank Castle to be, generally speaking, like somewhere in his 30s and also a Vietnam vet. It just, the timeline there, it doesn't really work all that well and it didn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure it's going to work a whole lot worse in a few years still to come. And so, anyway, basically that was the thinking that when the original universe got restored, 
little things like that were going to be taken care of, where Castle wasn't a veteran of Vietnam, maybe he was a veteran of the, the first Iraq war, or maybe something else, you know, who knows. So, and what this article, or at least this section of the article is doing, it's basically putting the kibosh on all of that. It's saying, no, 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 this is an X-Men story that we are telling about the X-Men. This X-Men story is going to have a beginning, it's going to have a middle, it's going to have an end, and when things go back to normal, and they will go back to normal, only the X-Men will have been affected by this. In other words, don't look for this to have, like, crisis on infinite earths types of type of repercussions, or shit, for that matter, even zero hour type repercussions. I mean, this is... I reserve the right to be wrong here, guys, but my memory of Age of Apocalypse, I could be wrong, but my memory of Age of Apocalypse is that once the story was over, the characters remembered that it happened, so that's one thing that changed, and Blink was now a, a member of the Marvel 616 universe. That was the other thing that changed. Aside from that, I don't think anything else really changed after Age of Apocalypse ended. I just... That's my memory of it. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anything else really changed. So, anyways. Now, if you will, just excuse me for just a second. I've been talking here virtually nonstop. I'm getting thirsty. I want to I wanna get a sip off of my Coke here. Hold on. Not sure if it's obvious, but this is Coke in a bottle. Oh, and it's also uh, regular, like plain Coke. You know, those of you who don't know, at some point or another, I think it was during that last batch of Legion of Superheroes five years later issues that I did, I pronounced orange vanilla Coke as the official beverage of Trennis Magnus punches reality. And I'm not going to say that my endorsement is what caused the problems. All I know is that I made that endorsement and then shortly after making that endorsement, the fucking Karens of the world just started buying orange vanilla Coke like it was going out of fucking style or something like that. So as a result, it's been next door neighbors with basically fucking impossible to find to find orange vanilla Coke, whether it's in bottles or whether it's in cans or just whatever. So I get to drink regular Coke out of a bottle. Thank you very much, Karens of America. So anyway, I'm skipping ahead now in this article because, again, I don't want to go through every single bit of it. I do want to have episodes about uh, Age of Apocalypse at some point in the future. I don't know when. And when I do, I know I definitely want to go through this article and then perhaps greater depth. But one of the things that I do want to tackle right here, this is page 29. The subheading says, Mutant Bashing. The actual section of this article says, I changed the subject to Marvel bashing and the mutant book bashing in particular that we witness 
on various computer services and in numerous letter, uh, letter columns. I've been with the company for nine years and I've dealt with it in all different phases, says uh, Nicisa. <clears throat> it starts from the basic premise that in this country, we want to knock down, number one, a peg or two. I don't know if I'm parsing that right. I'm going to try rereading that. It starts from the basic premise that in this country, we want to knock down, number one, a peg or two. Whatever. I don't, fuck, I don't know. That's always the case. When you're an underdog, everyone likes you. When you reach the top, nobody... Oh, so he's basically talking about Marvel. Okay, I get it. When you're an underdog, everyone likes you. When you reach the top, nobody likes you. That's a natural predisposition that people in this country have. Secondly, most of the people who do the knocking are people who have outgrown the kinds of material that Marvel tends to publish. I can go back and reread the kinds of things that I liked as a kid, now as an adult, and say, I can't believe I ever liked this stuff. Some of it still carries, but a lot of it doesn't. But I was 13 or 14 then. That's a reason why I viewed it the way I viewed it. I was a kid. <clears throat> and guys, basically, I want you to understand what it is that just happened here. All right. Uh, basically, Marvel in this Jurassic Age of the Internet that this issue of Wizard was uh, published in, even back then, you had fans online who were talking all kinds of trash. Marvel sucks. I like Image. Or uh, Spawn sucks. I like Wolverine. Or just fucking whatever. And I remember a fair amount of it. I don't know if I was online quite at this point yet. But anyway, uh, I remember that the Mar Marvel in general and the X-Men in particular were attractive targets. There's really, There's really no way around that. And, again, it just goes back to that rivalry. I mean, actually, shit, what am I saying? By the early to mid-90s, the rivalry had actually increased quite a bit. Uh, you always had DC versus Marvel. That was already there. But, shit, I completely overlooked the fact that Image was now a player as well. And the thing is, a lot of Image fans, back in 1991, they were confirmed Marvel fans. And... They basically uh, followed the Image founders over to Image. And after that, they really sort of gave up on Marvel. I mean, one of the things, and I think Todd McFarlane was especially good at this, but one of the things that the Image co-founders were very successful in doing was building a brand identity, you know, and a relationship with the customer, this kind of us versus them mentality. You know, it's, we're we're image we're number three in the marketplace and we're taking on the big two and we need your help you know and and all that uh, McFarlane I remember he was really good at that and he's kind of a bomb thrower to begin with or at least back in his younger days he was kind of a bomb thrower to begin with any anyway so I think stuff like that it was right up his alley you know he really enjoyed the the theatricality of it you know the the kayfabe of it all I think he really I always think that Todd McFarlane, like somewhere inside of him, there's a disgruntled WWE wrestler. You know, I, I just every now and then he makes a comment or he would make a, not so much these days, but back in the old days, he would just make these little comments every once in a while that that made me wonder, you know. So anyway, but the point is, you know, DC fans, they 
And I speak here as a DC fan, guys. I I can be a little bit self-deprecating here. I can be honest. I can laugh at myself a little bit and say that there were times when DC fandom would kind of go up its own ass a little bit when it came to recognizing the fact that, especially by 1995, guys, it's just kind of undeniable. DC had Neil Gaiman, had Alan Moore had Frank Miller, had just these amazing writers uh, working for them. Now, yeah, I think, actually, you know what? Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, I don't know so much about. But yeah, Frank Miller did some work for Marvel. I mean, that was kind of how he made his bones. But the stuff that people really remember, like some of the most famous stuff that Frank Miller ever did was done at DC, guys. And... Especially in the 80s, you know, he was in like the early through the late 80s, he became a little bit more of a DC company man, at least somewhat. And same thing with Alan Moore. Definitely same thing with Neil Gaiman. And my point in saying all of this is that DC basically had, let's just say it, better writing, you know. And even if you didn't have, you know, bigger hotshot superstar writers at DC, you still had more ambitious storylines, like, again, Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, where the ambition and the scope of that has never been equaled by anything, by any comic book ever published, before or since. Before or since, baby. And where is that at Marvel? Whereas at Marvel, I think it would be safe to say that Marvel tended to have flashier art, especially in the late 80s, getting into the, like, I would say probably the mid-90s. Well, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, because Joe Quesada started his run on Daredevil in the late 90s. And he's, I mean, I love Joe Quesada's Daredevil. So, no, I would actually say from the late, uh, the late 80s going right on through to at least the late 90s, Pound for pound, per capita, per page, per panel, I would actually say that Marvel probably had stronger art than DC. And so you had this, and, and, and again, that all, all of that goes to inform the rivalry and, and, you know, the flame wars and the arguments and the good-natured uh, uh, battles that the fans would have with each other. And my point in saying all of this, because God knows I've gone to Kansas and back with this thing now, is look at what Fabian Nicieza is saying here, Okay. Um, he says, after being told that people make fun, this is really the, the shtick of it, right? Basically, the interviewer is telling him, hey, people make fun of Marvel on, on the internet. People make fun of the X-Men on the internet. And Nicey's sort of response to that is to say, I've been with the company for nine years and I've dealt with it in all phases. It starts from the basic premise that in this country, we want to knock down, number one, a peg or two. That's always the case. When you're an underdog, everyone likes you. When you reach the top, nobody likes you. That's a natural predisposition that people in this country have. Secondly, most of the people who do the knocking are people who have outgrown the kinds of materials that Marvel tends to publish. And then he just goes on from there. You know what he doesn't do? Were any of you paying attention to that? You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't call the fans incels. He doesn't call them Nazis. He doesn't call them bigots. He doesn't call them haters. He doesn't call them losers. He doesn't tell them to go fuck themselves with uh, 
uh, no, he doesn't tell him to go eat a bag of pre-fucked dicks. You know, he basically, in, in case I'm not being clear here, he doesn't act like a modern day comic book pro. He basically says, yeah, well, when you're number one, of course, you're going to have people who hate you. So he's, he's kind of in a good natured sort of way. He's maybe throwing a little bit of shade at the competition, not at the fans, just at the competition. And then he goes on to say, he's like, look, guys, maybe, you know what? Maybe you've just aged out of the stuff that Marvel specializes in. You know, and it is true. I find that sometimes, sometimes the loudest critics uh, in, in in comics, sometimes the people who gripe and complain about ah, things were so much better back in the old days, back when comics cost 10 cents. You know, people who, who, who do shit like that, there's not all of them, not all of them. But some percentage of them, we need to say, probably have just aged the fuck out of whatever it is that they're critiquing. And it could be that they need something different from comics now. They need different comics. And that's basically what Nicey Easy is saying. He's not saying that, uh, you know, you're a fucking asshole if you don't like my comics and fuck you, you're obviously racist or anything like that. He's basically saying, hey, look, maybe you should just find comics that are more in line with what you're looking for. Maybe that's the real answer here. It could be that, you know, you're just beyond what we produce now. You know, he's not being rude. He's not being mean. He's being kind of playful with the competition, you know, his other publishers a little bit. But that's it. You know, he's not he's not trying to attack anybody. He's not a he's not insulting or humiliating fans just because of this, that or the other thing, you know, and it's like whatever happened to the spirit of this, you know, I don't and I don't mean specifically Fabian Nicieza, because as far as I know, he's still an upright guy and he's not one of those people that goes on the warpath against against fans like, say, Gail Simone does or Mark Wade does or any of those other fucking losers the way that they tend to do but like what happened to that spirit of professionalism you know and i just i don't know i don't know those were the good old days weren't they so anyway um you know what that kind of leads into you know all this x-men stuff you know that kind of leads into a little something else i wanted to talk about I, again i don't want to dwell too much on this either uh, this is about X-Men, the animated series. And it's basically... How shall I say it? Um, this is like a post-hype article. Does that make sense? This is basically, at this point, um, X-Men, the animated series that had been on for a season or two at this point... And so what Wizard is trying to do is basically acknowledge everything about about the show that they enjoy. Everything about it that that they that they appreciate because there's a sort of unspoken eh, superhero like animated superhero renaissance that happened in in, in the early to mid 90s where you had all of these animated shows 
that were coming out about various and sundry comic book uh, properties. You know, you had stuff like uh, Batman, the animated series, X-Men, the animated series, Spider-Man, the animated series. You had, you had um, fucking uh, uh, the Max on MTV. You had Spawn on HBO. You had Wildcats. I, I don't know. It was some like CBS or something. I don't know. It, it, it was some network or another. You even had the tick, you know, and the thing is, I mean, people can point back to Batman 89 as the beginning of some type of comic book revolution. And it's like, if you look at what came out after Batman 89, what was it? Well, you had the Phantom, a comic strip character. You had uh, Dick Tracy, a comic strip character. You had The Shadow, not a comic strip character, but a pulp character. Um, and it's like, basically, Hollywood took... They looked at the success of this uh, of a comic book character, Batman 89... They looked at the success of a comic book character and they said, let's greenlight movies about comic strips and pulps. <laughs> what the fuck were they thinking? But like network TV, or at least various and sundry TV stations, they took very different lessons from the success of Batman 89. And so out of that, like I say, you, you got uh, Batman the Animated Series, X-Men, Spider-Man, uh, fucking the Savage Dragon, Spawn. Uh, Superman, the animated series, just the fucking list goes on the max, the list goes on, you know, and it's like TV took the right lessons from the success of Tim Burton's first Batman movie that honestly, Hollywood really didn't, you know? And so my point in all of this is to say that X-Men, the animated series, this was something that most people had, I'm not exaggerating, guys. Kind of minimal expectations for, you know? Like, Batman the Animated Series, people were looking forward to it, but they didn't have... Again, they didn't have high expectations for it. X-Men the Animated Series didn't have high expectations for it. The only cartoon show that I can remember people really getting excited about and were really hopeful about was Spider-Man the Animated Series. And then... That's pretty much it. Everything else, I mean, if it turns out to be good, that's fine. We're mostly just happy to have whatever, you know? And for everything else that I could say about X-Men, the animated series, this is, it is a quality product. Now, guys, at the end of the day, the problem that I have with X-Men, the animated, or anything to do with X-Men on TV is Wolverine has claws and Wolverine kills people with his claws. You can't really squeaky that up well enough for TV censors, especially in the 1990s. It's just not possible. And so as a result, Wolverine, he's got a berserker rage, but he never really does anything with it. He's got these metal claws, but he never really does anything with them. And it's just like the character's kind of neutered, you know? It's like you can see the shadow of the character in there somewhere. But his true nature never really comes out because the censors really can't afford to let it come out. 
You know, so it's like as good as X-Men the Animated Series might be, and it is good, it does, it really does, I think, pay homage to the late Claremont, early uh, Labdell era of X-Men. It really does a good job of uh, of paying tribute to that stuff. At the end of the day, it's just incomplete by virtue of the fact that, I'm sorry, the Spawn animated show could be so much more graphic and violent than, I would say, specifically Wolverine. Like, if Wolverine wasn't in the X-Men animated series, probably like 90% of my hesitation about X-Men the animated series would probably go away. But it's it just seems like this is like the Diet Coke of Wolverine or or... I don't even know, like vanilla Wolverine, you know, it's, it's just, it's not really Wolverine, you know, and I don't know. So anyway, so we're kind of running with a theme here, a little bit of all this X-Men stuff. So I guess uh, getting into page 42, this is, guys, again, I need to triple underline this. Okay, this was a different fucking time, all right? These days, what people speculate about is who would make for a, a good Wolverine in this upcoming X-Men movie that we all know is going to happen sooner or later once Phase 4 gets underway with the MCU and the and, or I don't even know, maybe Phase 5 perhaps of the MCU gets underway and the X-Men can finally be incorporated in, in, in uh, into the MCU. Who's going to play Wolverine and how cool is it going to be and all that? We know, we know that is going to happen. We know it. But it's like back in the 90s, I mean, all we had were, were our fondest hopes. You know, pie in the sky, by and by. Wouldn't it be great if a Dark Knight Returns movie was ever made or... Uh, let me think, um, a Savage Dragon movie or, or something like that, you know, but all we had were hopes that maybe someday this could happen if we're lucky, maybe decades from now. So you would get like kind of fanboy sort of wanky kind of articles like this from Wizard. And I mean, on a pretty regular basis from Wizard, where they would cast what they think would be an ideal, well, cast for a for a, for a, a given comic book movie. And so this month, what do you want to bet? We're talking about X Men because that seems to be the theme with Wizard this month. A lot of X Men stuff in here. Um, this is on uh, page forty-two, and this is actually not a bad cast. I mean, I think this cast they probably. They probably would have done just fine with with the characters. So let's see. Uh, playing Emma Frost, uh, basically what the wizard staff suggest is Rebecca De Mornay. You remember her? Remember Rebecca De Mornay? And you know what? Yeah, I I, I could see that. Kind of wish that had happened. They even have a picture of her where she's wearing this white dress and she actually looks kind of Emma Frostish in this photo. Rebecca De Mornay does. Uh 
So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really take a whole lot of imagination to see that. Same thing with Clancy Brown playing Sabretooth. The little caption box says, The Savage Sabretooth comes to life courtesy of Clancy Brown, who's best known as the Kurgan from the first and only good Highlander flick, as well as the Sheriff from Pet Cemetery 2. Now, in today's world, I think a lot of fans probably know Clancy Brown from The Shawshank Redemption, and also uh, the voice of Lex Luthor from Superman the Animated Series, uh, JLU, and so forth. But he was known for villains even back in those days. Next up, Magneto, the leader of this unpleasant group, would be played by Rutger Hauer, may he rest in peace, best known for his role as the head loony replicant Roy Batty from Blade Runner. And I think fans these days may remember him also from Batman Begins. Let's see here. Oh, yeah, here's a really good one. All right. This is on page 45. But wait, there's more. Our team would also be paid a visit by a certain time-traveling, battle-scarred, tough-as-nails warrior. Yep. Cable would have a certain, or rather, Cable would have a supporting role played by King of the Tough Guys, Clint Eastwood. And I'm not even going to do... My, uh, Clint Eastwood impression. I just suck at Clint Eastwood. But it basically says, go ahead, clone me, make my day. Boy, that'd be cool. Let's see. Oh, yeah, this is really good. Look at this. Again, this is page 45. The codenameless Jean Grey would be played by megababe Nicole Kidman. Best known for her role as Tom Cruise's main squeeze in Far and Away. And The Dark Knight's less, uh, next love interest in Batman Forever. Let's see. And some of this, I don't know. I really don't know about. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I can't talk as much as I did about Wolverine without mentioning Wolverine. Wolverine, the most unshaven hero in comics, would be brought to life by brooding rock star Glenn Danzig. So... Yeah, I'm actually kind of glad that never happened. Another one I'm glad never happened. This one is, Psylocke would be brought to life so perfectly by actress Tia Carrere that it'd be eerie. And I don't know about it. I'm quite happy that Olivia Munn played it. Well, I think Olivia Munn only played Psylocke in... The movie Age of Apocalypse, but I, I don't think I think that was it for her time with the characters. That kind of sucks, but whatever. I mean, I liked Olivia Munn. I don't know. I mean, could Tia Carrera have done a good job? I mean, she. I, I'll say this. You know, uh, my understanding is that uh, Psylocke really is meant to be Chinese, or she's actually she's drawn in such a way that it could be Chinese or it could be Japanese. It's just all in how you look at it, I guess. So there is a sense in which Tia Carrere fits that part of it a little bit better than Olivia Munn. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. It it never happened, so I guess I guess it's kind of irrelevant. Now getting to page 43, this actually I I I could totally see this. This yeah. It says Field leader Cyclops is the spitting image of Michael Bean. 
best known as Kyle Reese, the hero from the first Terminator flick, and Corporal Hicks from Aliens. And he was also in The Abyss, guys. Show some fucking respect here. So, <clears throat> he, what's his name? Coffee. Like, uh, I don't not Captain, not Lieutenant. Was it Lieutenant? Whatever. Lieutenant Coffee. Fucking whatever. Something like that. Pre-Nutso Colossus would be played by tough guy Dolph Lundgren, who is best remembered for slapping around Rocky and Rocky IV as the Russian roidhead Ivan Drago. And when you think about it, I mean, I guess that makes sense, but it's like, you guys, you, you do, you do realize that Dolph Lundgren is not actually Russian. I mean, you, you understand that. Right. And so, like, it's look, maybe they cast him based on in this article, maybe they cast <clears throat> they cast him uh, based on based on his physique, because in, in Rocky four, I mean, the guy really was chiseled as fuck. But I can't help thinking that's well, I say that, though, maybe I should go easy on him. I mean, <clears throat> this article would have been written like in 1994. It's not like they had Google or something like that. They may have actually thought the guy really was Russian. And then, finally, dun da 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 the moment you've all been waiting for. Sometimes, guys, wishes really do come true. Here we go. As far as the X-Men go, we'd have an eight-hero team comprised of the coolest members ever to wear one of them styling X-belt buckles. Leading the team would be Professor X, played by, wait for it, Patrick Stewart, best known for his portrayal of Jean-Luc Picard on TV's Star Trek The Next Generation. And as far as the others who would play the X-Men themselves, and then it just sort of goes on from there. So, and we've already talked, not about all of these, but I would say, like, most of them. Um... And I don't know. That's probably enough to be to be getting on with. It's yeah. Wow, there's just a fucking shit ton of. How did I never notice this? Like, I I just flipped ahead a few pages, and so guys, just to kind of summarize all this here. All right, we had a preview of coming attractions with Age of Apocalypse. Immediately following that, there's an article about X Men the animated series. Immediately following that, there's a casting call like wish list casting for an X-Men movie. And then immediately following that, we get a special, a, a special article that's all about a Marvel, uh, not Marvel. Well, generally, I guess this is a Marvel trading card set, but it's specifically like, no, 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 I was wrong. No, this is specifically about an X-Men trading card set. This article is. This article, this is on page 50. So this is so this article here it's all about the Fleer Ultra X-Men trading cards and jeez how fucking much Yeah so it's like page 57 before we get something that's not specifically about the X-Men so yeesh I don't know wow somebody who works for Wizard has a serious boner for the X-Men. I mean, wow. All right. So let's see. 
something else I wanted to talk about. I'm trying to flip to the right spot here. All right, so this is <clears throat> this is on page 66. It's an article called Looking Ahead, and it's basically about previews of coming attractions for a bunch of, like, all the different publishers uh, for uh, of comics during the year 1995. And uh, let's see. Just trying to get an idea of just how long. God, this article is fucking endless. Oh, look at this. So... All right, well, whatever. I'll just go through this and let's just see what happens. All right, so next, uh, or I guess to start with, uh, this kicks off with Dark Horse Comics. Now, one of the kind of interesting things about Dark Horse Comics is that, at least historically, they didn't really deal a whole lot in superhero comics and, and, and things like that. They were mostly... Uh, they mostly cater to either licensed properties like Star Wars and Terminator and shit like that, or else they would do just kind of weird offbeat creator own type stuff like Hellboy or, or, or Madman or, or, or just, you know, kind of weird, goofy, bizarre shit like that. Paul Chadwick's concrete. But by this point, one of the things that they'd actually done is, they'd actually introduced their own line of superhero comics. Uh, this imprint was called Comics Greatest World, and my memory of it is it didn't last... It did not survive beyond 1995. I could be wrong, but I, I swear to think, this what we're basically seeing here, this is Comics Greatest World's swan song, more or less. So, I don't know. What I can say, though, at least in terms of Dark Horse, is there was a lot of energy, a lot of energy going on with Star Wars comics, especially in 1995. The Star Wars renaissance that had gotten started like in like 1990 or 90, 91, maybe. Whenever it was that that first Timothy Zahn novel came out, Heir to the Empire, whenever that was. That was the real start, like the first snowflake in the blizzard of the uh, of the Star Wars Renaissance. But just about the time you get into 1995, bro, the the uh, Star Wars Renaissance is now in full fucking swing. Uh, this thing is the just the energy and excitement that was happening with Star Wars at the time, because I think by this point the prequels, I think they were, I think at least the Phantom Menace was officially announced in 1994, like this is coming, it is happening, we're making the movie, and and I think the original release date or release window for it was even 1997, and then it kept getting pushed back. But it, my memory of it though is, it was in. Uh, it was originally intended for 1997 and just the amount of energy and excitement and hype that had grown up around star Wars. I mean, you want to talk about some earned enthusiasm. Holy fucking shit. I mean, it was just so good. Ah, so good. So. Sorry. 
I just want to get another sip off my Coke here. All right. And since I'm here, you know what? I haven't had any vapor in a little while, and I've been sitting here talking to you guys for like over an hour now, so I think I've earned a little bit of vapor. Stand by. All right. All right, so another th another little bit of business going on here with a dark horse and then after this I am I really am going to move on. Um this is on page 68. The article says The Shadow, Hell's Heat Wave, a three-issue miniseries beginning in April, pits the shadow against some explosive ethnic difficulties with Michael Kaluta and Joel Goss writing and Gary Gianni on the art. And that's really all we get about uh, Hell's Heat Wave, I think, in this entire issue. But I must tell you that uh, Hell's Heat Wave, and really all of Dark Horse's uh, Shadow stuff, it's been on my, it's been on the bucket list for a pretty long time now. Stuff that I want to talk about during the lifetime of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. It's just that right now, when it comes to the shadow, what makes the most sense to me is if I'm going to talk about the shadow comics, why not continue with the shadow strikes? And speaking of the shadow strikes, I know I'm going to continue with that at some point or another. I just don't know when, but I, I do know I, I want to I want to get at least to a certain point with the shadow strikes before I start getting into anything that Dark Horse released about the shadow. So when is all that going to happen? Fuck to find out. So let's see. Moving right along here. Let's see. All right. This again, this is on page 68. This is under the DC Comics section. Uh, the article says, for Superman, it seems like the troubles never end. Some days, the Man of Steel must wonder why he didn't just stay dead. Just to prove that things are never so bad that they can't get worse, his greatest fear is about to be realized. The revelation of his secret identity to one of his greatest foes. All this is part of a storyline which culminates in Superman number 100 in March. The death of Clark Kent. After that, Nobody's talking. There'll be a new outlet for Super Stories in 1995, though, called Showcase 95, or rather, as Showcase 95, switches from Batman characters to Superman characters for its lead feature, with Supergirl getting the starring role in the first two-parter. And in relation to the death of Clark Kent, guys, I don't know this to be true, okay? I, I honestly don't. But the message, or not even the message, just the sense I've gotten is that the the Superman titles, especially in the 90s, you know, in when the the triangle number system was was the order of the day. It was very collaborative. Maybe that's a diplomatic way of saying it. It was very collaborative. And so as a result of everybody getting a little bit of what they want. Nobody got 
everything they wanted. And so I've always kind of wondered, this storyline called The Death of Clark Kent, was this originally meant to be part of uh, the Doomsday Funeral for a Friend Reign of the Superman trilogy that I refuse to refer to as anything other than Doomsday Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman? I've always kind of wondered about that because when you think about it, it would have been an organic story development for Superman's secret identity to somehow or another become public, at least during Funeral for a Friend. You know, maybe not so much before that or after that, but during Funeral for a Friend, you could say that it would have been logical and natural and organic for the secret to somehow get exposed to at least a few people, you know? Maybe not fully public, but exposed at least to a few people. And the fact is, if you introduce that storyline, you've got to introduce it, you've got to develop it, you've got to resolve it, you know? And when you think about the number of story threads that were going on in the the uh, Doomsday Funeral for a Friend Reign of the Superman trilogy that I refuse to refer to as anything other than Doomsday Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman. There were so fucking many other story things that were going on that introducing a huge thing like anybody knew finding out about Clark Kent's secret identity. It's just too much. You know, it, it, all of these different story elements, they need to be balanced against one another. And there's an argument that there's way too much story bullshit going on in Reign of the Superman as it is. That the story elements are really not all that well balanced against each other, just as things are right now. The minute you add in something new, how much worse is it going to get, you know? And so, again, I can't prove this. There's really no evidence for this, but I've wondered more than once if something like this Death of Clark Kent storyline wasn't originally intended to be part of whatever happened or somebody's original intention for Funeral for a Friend and then the original aftermath of all that. It just kind of makes me wonder. Again, can't prove it, but I've wondered. I've wondered about that many, many, many times. So let's see. Not really seeing too much other DC stuff that's really jumping out at me here. Um, DC Vertigo, eh. Image Comics. There's Glory and Velocity, and their cleavages. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I I forgotten about this. Um I I don't know if this was a joke that was introduced by Wizard or what, but this little there's a there, there's a picture of uh Glory and then there's another picture of right next to it there's a picture of Velocity. This is on page 71. And the little inset here says, With possible silicone chase covers, Extreme's glory and Top Cow's velocity will fly solo in 95. And I, and I mean, if you look at, uh, shall we say, glory's assets and velocity's assets, 
Um, you can kind of see where the, the silicone joke is coming from. But I remember people in my LCS, <laughs> I remember I remember people taking that seriously. And you know how it is? I mean, I was a stupid fucking kid. I didn't know. It's like, wow, a silicone cover. It, I've never heard of such a thing. Wow, that, that sounds so kind of weird, to tell you the truth. So, I don't know. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is on uh, page 72. I've kind of touched on this in one of my previous... Uh, I think it was the episode that I did about Wizard number 44. I briefly, or sort of briefly, uh, touched on the, the at the time, the then upcoming uh, Gen 13 ongoing series that started up in 1995. And as I say, I will do episodes about the ongoing series all in due course. There's a way that I want to do it. And um, guys, all in good time. All right. So just bear with me. I promise it's going to happen. Just not right away. So um, let's see. Yeah, there's also some stuff in here about Shadowhawk. But guys, look, here's an unpopular opinion for you, all right? Or actually, a couple of unpopular opinions. Number one, once you get away from that first Shadowhawk miniseries, I really can take or leave Shadowhawk, you know? I just, I don't know. I, I don't think, I've never thought that Shadowhawk was just such a fucking amazing character that you that that I wanted to keep coming back for more and more and more Shadowhawk. And I freely admit that a good that like a big part of that, it may actually come down to the fact that Jim Valentino was the artist. Because what I've noticed about Jim Valentino is that if you put him in as your cover artist, the work that you get like 90% of the time, at least 90% of the time, is gonna be top quality, right? It's Solid work. You can't say a word about it. It definitely looks like it belongs with Image Comics, right? But the minute you put Jim Valentino in there as the interior artist where he has to draw the pages, something happens to his style that I don't even know what the fuck. But it's like, this is, this is like warmed over early 90s, like, like bad warmed over early 90s Marvel. This is just not really good art at all. It just, it's not exciting to look at. It's not super detailed. It's not really anything. It's just kind of there, you know? And I just, I don't really get into it as much. I mean, Jim Valentino doing Shadowhawk covers. Amazing. It's great. Can't say a word about it. Jim Valentino doing Shadowhawk interiors, though, for whatever reason, that is a different story. So, anyways, let's see. Moving right along, there's Malibu Comics. The Ultraverse, or... <laughs> the Ultraverse that isn't long for this world at this point. Fucking Marvel buying them out. Fucking assholes. Uh, all right. Speaking of Marvel, yeah. yeah, 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 
yeah, no, there's some there's some decent Valiant stuff that was coming out. Now, my memory, and I could be wrong, but my memory of it is the the buyout with Acclaim, I swear to think that was like eh, like three, maybe four, maybe five months from now. So, I don't know. I mean, whatever it was that people loved about Valiant, <clears throat> it just didn't seem like it, it It made the jump from Valiant to Acclaim. Oh, wait, what am I saying? It says right here. The, uh, actually, don't, geez, I was wrong. No, the, um, the acquisition had already happened. The expected impact of the acquisition of Valiant, uh, Valiant's parent company, Voyager Communications, by Acclaim Entertainment will probably not be fully felt until late 1995, when the Turok slash Rai video game, the first one developed for the uh, N64 platform, hits the market. The underlying effect of the new ownership, however, combined with the sales impetus generated by this summer's company-wide crossover, The Chaos Effect, has the valiant folks raring to go. And ho, 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 boys and girls, I'm here to tell you that ain't true. Um... That took the wind out of a lot of people's sails. You can find interviews with, uh, like, and I mean like more candid interviews with former Valiant pros from around this time. People who are more than happy to tell you that Acclaim buying the company out, that was basically the beginning of the, the beginning of the end for Valiant. And in fact, some of them will even say that wasn't even the beginning of the end. That was just fucking the end. That's it. Show's over. So, anyway. Um, I don't know. It's just, by 1995, which is really what this issue is supposed to be all about, the abiding sense that I had about the direction of the comic book industry is that the good old days were definitely over. And I mean the halcyon days of 1991, 1992, somewhat even into 1993, where it wasn't necessarily uh, unusual for a super special uh, comic book to sell a million copies. Like, in the same way that it's not exactly breaking news anymore for certain types of movies to hit a billion dollars worldwide. Same thing, really, with comic books, or at least specific issues of comic books, selling a million copies back in the uh, back in the early 90s but by about the time things got underway in 1995 it became pretty apparent to at least to me and I think to a lot of people that contrary to what people were saying about 1994 where this was the year where we start getting things back to normal a little bit no the the market had changed ultraverse or well, yeah, Ultraverse was about to get bought up. Marvel was about to go exclusive with Heroes World. The Acclaim buyout, uh, you know, all that stuff going on with Valiant, that had gone through. And basically the market as we knew it from, say, 1991 to the end of 1994, it either didn't exist anymore or within the next few months, it wouldn't exist anymore as it had, as we had known it, you know, and it was really very much a, a pretty big time of change. That's how I remember it. So anyway, 
So opposite page 78, I guess technically this would be page 79, this is a, a, a house ad for Batman Comics. It basically features Batman. He's jumping off a, a rooftop. And the big shtick of it is supposed to be that he's got, he's basically wearing a, a new outfit. And it's supposed to be an outfit that's a little bit more in keeping with what we had seen in the movies up to this point. And I really don't know what the success of that actually is, because I think we're supposed to infer that the bodysuit is black. But the cape has so many blue highlights to it that it almost looks like instead of wearing a gray and blue outfit, he's wearing a black and blue outfit. And he's also got those little fin scallop looking things on um, the... Uh, uh, the calves of of uh, his bodysuit. And you don't really see any seams or anything like that. It really looks like the entire uniform is just one big bodysuit rather than having separate components to it. And, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a neat-looking costume, but when you consider the amount of hype and attention from the fan press that this new uniform got, it, it's kind of worth asking is this really new enough or different enough to justify the amount of excitement that got through it? Now, my memory of it, though, is that this was introduced in Batman number 515. And the funny thing about that is, you know, all due respect to Kelly Jones, I love Kelly Jones. All due respect to him, but you never really get a very good look at the new outfit anywhere in Batman number 515, just because Jones has a style that is so dependent upon deep and heavy shadows and, and all that stuff. Batman spends most of his time uh, hunched over. And so as a result, you never really see his outfit. So it's like you go into that issue, not knowing anything about the new outfit and you come out of it still not knowing anything about the new outfit. It's just, it's just kind of funny. To me so but anyway now again you know it what i think we're supposed to infer is that everything about this outfit is black now so as to match up with the suits that we saw in the movies but it's like it just doesn't really look like a black because how do you have a black suit on a comic book page and i don't like no one's ever really been able to answer that so so i don't know anyways all right, so let's see what else is there here. Yeah, no, I've got a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit more. All right, so just bear with me. I almost found it. Yes, here it is right now. All right, so this is on page number 120. This is called 8 to the 4. The subheading says... Wizard takes a look at eight of the comic book industry's most underrated talents. And I don't want to give them, give them away all right here, right now, but these are some pretty big names that you have definitely heard of. And it's strange to think this is where they got started. So anyway, so a little bit of a spotlight falls, first of all, on Rags Morales. Now, sometimes you need to be reminded of shit because... Let's face it, it's been all these years, and so who can remember who, like, which artist broke it big and which year and all that fun stuff? 
And it's strange that, actually, you know what? It's strange that Alex Ross isn't listed in here. But, eh, whatever. Anyway, but Rags Morales. And guys, just think about that. I mean, I guess I totally blanked that out. But when I dug all, when I dug all of my, uh, uh, all of my comics out of, uh, uh, not my comics, sorry, all of my uh, uh, wizards out of, uh, mothballs and everything. Um, I guess, I don't know. I'm, this was one of the issues that I pulled out and somehow all these years, I just somehow forgotten that rags Morales. I mean, 1994 was the, that was his year guys. That was really his year. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it, I guess my point is it's strange what you can forget about, you know, it, it's strange that, you know, it's, Whatever. But I, I, I have had the pleasure, though, of, of meeting Rags Morales. I, I, I met him at a con. And I didn't have any uh, any cash on me to, uh, to to buy a sketch or anything like that. I didn't have any, any of his comics with me to get him signed or anything like that. But I did at least want to shake his hand. You remember, you remember shaking hands? You remember when people were allowed to shake hands? Um, anyway, but I... I, I did shake his hand and I just told him, look, man, I think, I think, you, you know, your work is awesome. I've got a lot of respect for you as an artist and, uh, you know, basically just wish the guy nothing but, but success. And, you know, he looked, he looked, you know, grateful, you know, he looked like, you know, really touched, like that kind of made his day a little bit, you know, hearing that type of, uh, type of feedback from, from a fan. So just bear with me. I want to get another sip off of my Coke here. And some more vapor too. All right. All right, so uh, <clears throat> next up on the list, guys, brace yourselves. Mike Perobeck. Now, I have it on good authority that Mike Perobeck had uh, fans in the comic book world going back to his days on the fly. You know, actually, what? Actually, you know what? What came first? I wonder. His Justice League stuff or the fly? I actually don't remember. I, I tend to think it was the fly, but maybe maybe not. I don't know. But um, and either either way though, um, he had definitely gotten a lot of attention after uh, all of uh, uh, all his work on um, uh, the Batman Adventures. And as far as I'm concerned, you can never say enough nice things about Mike Parabek. That guy is one of the most underrated artists of, certainly of the 90s. I don't know that he ever got the amount of, the, the amount of attention that he deserved and the amount of respect. Because it just seems to me that, and you know what, I mean, quite rightly so, a lot of people were sort of uh, fixated, especially back in those days, on the likes of John Byrne, of 
uh, Todd McFarlane, you know, the usual run of image, uh, image people. And I got nothing, nothing against those people. They're great. I love, I love those guys, but I'm just saying, you know, at the same time, they were not the only game in town guys. And, you know, Mike Parabek, you know, I think history has been really kind to that guy, but it's like at the same time, I don't know that he's ever going to get, uh, the respect and the cred that, that he deserves. So I don't know. So it's good at least that wizard wizard was, uh, uh, paying a tribute to him here. When, when you think about it, they really didn't have to, you know, it didn't have to be that way. So anyways, uh, let's see now moving right along. <clears throat> Next up was Daryl Banks and Guys, I loved Daryl Banks and his work on Green Lantern. Like sometimes, you know, with with some artists, you you kind of need you need time with them. You know, you need time to kind of figure them out and, you know, what are their sensibilities? You know, what makes for a a good example of their work versus a bad example of their work? You just need time with that sort of thing. And that just does not apply to Daryl Banks. I was on board with his art virtually from the get-go, you know, pretty much right from the first time I set eyes on it. I was instantly on the same wavelength with what Daryl Banks was up to. I fucking adore his, his, his Green Lantern stuff. And, um, it's, it's just, it's incredible. It's classic. I, I love it. Can't get enough of it. And it's, it's, I've, it's always been a shame because I, I don't know about anyone else, but it's, I've always thought it was, a, it, it, it was a big shame that he never had the, the type of career that I at least thought he deserved. I mean, it's great that he did amazing work on Green Lantern and he did do amazing work on Green Lantern. But, you know, shouldn't he have at some point or another done some stuff on Spider-Man or maybe, I don't like the Hulk or Batman or, Super, you know, just any of these characters, the Flash, perhaps, because God knows they had trouble holding on to artists, you know, like, why is it that he he just didn't get the boost that he that he should have? So I and I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. So anyway, next up is Michael Ringo and primarily for his stuff on the flash, which it makes sense. Um, what am I supposed to do? Tell anybody that they're wrong. I mean, I love, uh, uh, the Ringo flash. I mean, I think by this point he'd already done something for like, I, I want to say it was something for X-Men or no, 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 no. Like rogue. It was either Rogue or Storm, but there was like an annual or a, or a one shot or he did something, you know, and I, I swear to think it wasn't, I don't think his work on the flash was the first time that I ever saw his stuff. I swear to think that, I don't know, whatever. It, it's been all these years. So, but anyway, point is I love Ringo's. Oh, here it is right now, actually. Um, oh, right. Okay. I see. Okay. No, actually, this fills in some gaps, actually. All right. So, um, basically, 
what he did was, number one, it was a rogue miniseries. It was not a one-shot. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, that actually came out after his Flash stuff. The thing is, though, I think I actually read the the Rogue miniseries before I picked up the... Because I don't remember what happened, but somehow I think I missed all or most of Michael Ringo's uh, Flash issues. And so the first time I could I, that I can really remember just diving headfirst into his, uh, into his work was rogue. And so, and then shortly thereafter the, the rogue stuff, it was Robin. I'm thinking it was, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Robin. And then I think I picked up the flash stuff that I'd missed that he did as back issues. So that I think is right. I think the only micro Ringo issue of the flash that i had for a long time was it was flash it's either 80 or 82 i forget which but basically it's it's wally west he has to take uh Fran, uh he he basically has to take frank uh frankie he has to take her out it's at a baseball stadium and he has to use some some science who's he what's us to to basically short circuit her powers. And so whatever issue that is, it's either 80 or 82. I, I am positive of this. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that was the only issue of Michael Ringo's Flash that I had for a pretty long time. So anyway, uh, so let's see. Next up, uh, this is Travis Cherist. Tra Travis Cheray. Travis Cheray or Cherist. Yeah, fuck it. I'm from Texas. So Travis Cherist, uh, basically his stuff on Wildcats. Now, I enjoy Travis Cherist on Wildcats, but for me, Wildcats is really supposed to be a collaboration between Brandon Choi and Jim Lee. And so it's fine if other writers have to come in to help uh, Brandon Choi out. Or it's fine if other artists have to come in and help Jim Lee out. But for me, the real prime of Wildcats, it's those two working on this concept that they've clearly had in mind for a really long time. And I'm not taking anything away from Travis Cherist. I think he's great. I love his work on Wildcats. I would never say a word against it. I'm just saying I prefer Jim Lee. That's all. Me and probably millions of other others of people. So... Let's see. Uh, next up, this is J. Scott Campbell. Now, guys, I'm a J. Scott Campbell fanboy from way back. I love Campbell. And the thing is, like, I don't completely know uh, what exactly his history was with Wildstorm. Like, was he brought in as a hired gun or was he like somebody's friend and they thought, okay, well, we'll bring you in and this Gen 13 thing that you've got in mind. Yeah, we can run with that. Or I look, I don't know what the deal was, but all I know is if you read the first issue of the Gen 13 miniseries and then read the first issue of the Gen 13 ongoing series, you can recognize that the same artist it was obviously the same artist that drew both of those comics, but the artist that drew Gen 13 
number one of the ongoing series, he had grown so much. He had expanded his craft and perfected his talent. He had improved so fucking much, you know, that his original, like that, the first issue of the miniseries, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly good, perfectly competent, perfectly adequate. But he actually makes, he has improved so much by the time the ongoing series starts that the first issue of the miniseries actually looks kind of primitive by comparison. That's how much the motherfucker grew in terms of his talent and ambition and all that fun stuff. He was just phenomenal. And it, I've, I think it's very much deserved that he was uh, capturing a lot of interest and excitement uh, with uh, his work on Gen 13 virtually from the start. I, I think that's fair, just, and appropriate. So... Um, so let's see. Wow, this episode's starting to get a little, a little long here. Um, trying to just check through this thing and see if there's anything else that I want to touch on. Yeah, there's Wizard Market Watch, and yeah, this is actually a sort of brief enough section. I think I can, I can justify going through this. Uh, this section of Market Watch, uh, the subheading says, A strong 94 and a promising 95. Um, the first section says, Is it over yet? That may have been one of the more oft-asked questions on collectors' lips last year. While 1993 was filled with brilliant works like DC's Death miniseries, Malibu's Prime, and Cartoon Books' Bone, the operative word was filled and a sizable glut of product caused the comic book market to implode. There was simply too much product out there, leaving publishers and retailers to groan as the number of readers, suffering over what to buy, plummeted. The industry got back, to its, uh, got back on its collective uh, feet this year, meaning 1994, however, with a still sizable amount of product, but with a, more of a solid, secure fan following. So. Other questions may be floating around the minds of industry watchers. Will the market stay this strong? Could be one. And can the, can the back issue market survive is assuredly another. The latter due to the significant, almost unprecedented lack of leftover funds and new issue uh, hoarding buyers. Although there might be, although there might be reason enough for people to worry, 1994 has certainly done its part to ease the always alert minds of market watchers and participants. And then from there, you get into a little bit of the rat race of, you know, um, hot books, hot artists, uh, hot publishers, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And look, the thing is, I don't really, I don't really have a dog in that race either way. I just want to say that it was conventional wisdom at the beginning of 1995 that things had basically settled out. And in 1994 and my experience my memory of it is that there's a sense in which that's even kind of true because i mean indeed the market really had stabilized now there would be kind of further declines but it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be that massive monumental crash that happened in in 1993 so 
whatever you want to whatever you want to take from that. So, you know, there's actually another article here that I that I could work my way through. This is on page 134. It's just a roundtable of different artists and writers and whatnot. And it's it's not really clear, like, are they talking to each other or are they speaking in a vacuum and then their comments are being combined with each other? I tend to think it's the latter. I tend to think that these, these artists and writers were not actually in the same room at the same time, unless it was at some con or something like that, but I don't know. They, I, even that seems sort of unlikely, so I don't know. Anyway, it's there's enough meat on the bone here. It feels like I could turn this into an episode all by itself, and I don't especially care to do that. So, yeah, I think I'm going to just go ahead and call it a day here with with this episode, um, or at least with, with this issue. Like I said, guys, I mean, this was sort of a blockbusting issue to begin with anyway, and I'm, I only got about halfway through it before you kind of have to throw in the towel and say, you know, enough is too much already. So, I don't know. Either way, um, I do enjoy talking about these issues of, uh, of, of Wizard Magazine, and I definitely want to circle back to that at some point in the future, though I'm not really all that sure when that's going to be. But um, getting into next week, I haven't really figured out completely what it is that I want to talk about. Uh, I've had Star Wars on the brain quite a bit lately, but I don't know. I'm not sh- I, 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 I don't know. I'm not making any promises. I don't really know what next week's episode is going to be about. Or for that matter, if there's even going to be an episode next week. You know, at this point, I'm just recording episodes as I have a chance. And so I guess whatever happens after that happens after that. So either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week, perhaps. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. 
My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. My name is Trennis Magnus, and I host a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks 
Podcast Network. Here at Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, we usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, because those are my favorites, but every once in a while, all that stuff gets put on pause so that I can wander through the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. I've really come to adore the works of J.R.R. Tolkien over the past several years, and so I occasionally record episodes about it. This is Radio Free Isengard. Radio Free Isengard is an irregular feature of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, which could consist of subjects such as movie discussions, book reports, character analysis, gushing over Howard Shore's music, how awesome it would be to live in Hobbiton, or any of a million other possibilities. For one thing, I do a rewatch of the Lord of the Rings films every year, and I seem to have fallen into the habit of recording my thoughts on a given year's marathon. The point is that the subject matter could be anything, and you never really know what might be coming next. So join in on the fun of Radio Free Isengard, an irregular feature of Trennis Magnus punches reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com.